the course is starting uh, with, as usual for us, uh, a more pathogenesis-oriented uh, talk. Uh, we like to kind of bring the, uh, the latest uh, science to us, and in, in this point in time, uh, HIV basic science research is largely focused on two things, either creating a vaccine to prevent HIV infection or finding a way uh, to cure the infection once it's established. And uh, the latter is going to be the talk today. Steve Deeks is a professor of medicine at UCSF, works at Zuckerberg, uh, San Francisco General. Hi, Susan. Um, and uh, has been really an international leader uh, in cure research. He, he co-leads the IAS, the other organization, the International AIDS Society uh, uh, effort, uh, at inter again, at international coordination of cure research. No one better to t take us through this than Steve Deeks. Steve. Thank you, Paul. Let's see here. Before you even start, uh, as always, we really like questions, and we have, I think, time for, uh, for a, a number of questions after each of the talks. Uh, you'll be given uh, 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 sheets of paper, cards, uh, to ask, to, uh, as, so as the talks go along, keep track of your questions. Thank you. Well, welcome. This is actually an outstanding room, so um, uh, happy to be here. So what I want to do, um, these are my disclosures, and... Um, and um, I think the next slide is sort of my outline here. Here are the learning objectives. Um, what I hope to do over the next uh, 25 minutes or so is to provide sort of an overview, sort of the greatest hits of HIV research, talk about, you know, what happens during long-term therapy, where does actually the virus actually live, why does it persist, um, can we measure it, which is a big deal now in the business, and talk in broad terms about ways about going about trying to get rid of it. Okay, so those are the objectives, um, and here are the specific questions, and I'm going to go one by one, talk about each of these questions, and um, provide uh, uh, some data, um, perhaps some opinion as to um, uh, what the answers are and what the path forward is to try to figure this out. So we'll start off talking about how much virus there is during long-term treatment, which is something I think patients actually are quite interested about. How stable is it? Does it change over time? Um, where exactly is it in the body? Which tissues? Can it be measured? Um, can we actually, with early antiretroviral therapy, prevent latency and hence cure people? Um, um, and if we don't, can we reverse it therapeutically? And if we can't get rid of it by reversing it, can we control it indefinitely? And how much might a cure cost if it's going to have an impact? Okay, so what do we know about the size and the stability and distribution of the reservoir. Now, there's a lot of controversy as to how to define reservoir. Um, uh, during long-term antiretroviral therapy, there may be a virus population that's replicating. There may be some cells that are active and making virus. Most people, um, and then there's this, this subset of cells which are completely resting, in which the virus is essentially turned off. Most people consider the reservoir to be that part of the virus population that exists during antiretroviral therapy that can ignite new rounds of replication if you stop therapy. Basically, the virus population that matters. Um, and that is a hard thing to measure, as I'll come to shortly. But let me talk about what we know about how much there is. So we all know that when you go on antiretroviral therapy, um, in the modern era, uh, the amount of virus that's in blood goes down several logs 
pretty quickly, pretty standardly, pretty routinely. And it's actually quite amazing how easy it is to get the virus down to undetectable. After several months, the amount of RNA in plasma uh, goes down on average to around one copy of RNA per ml, way below the threshold of 20. Sometimes it bounces around between one and three. And that's often when you get a viral load test back that says that it's unquantifiable but detected. I think most assays now do that. That's basically telling you that there's a, there's a hint of virus still in the plasma, often in that one to two to three range. Um, it's been assumed before that once that virus gets down to that range, it's stable. But emerging data would suggest that actually that level continues to decline for many, many years. Um, and often will go well below one, um, sometimes down to about a half a copy of RNA per ml. Whether that's clinically relevant remains highly debated, but there is virus in the plasma. Um, and that virus is coming from cells. And the vast majority of the virus population exists in these cells. Um, and, and these cells are not in blood. There certainly is cells circulating blood with the virus. But when you get in long-term treatment, and there's some work coming out from Tim Shacker about this, um, this is true in monkeys and it's true in people, it's pretty clear that the vast majority, the absolute vast majority of the virus resides in lymph nodes, in lymph node-like structures within the gut, and probably the spleen. Um, and this is where most of the virus resides, and it makes sense, because this is where most of the CD4 T cells reside, and they typically are next to each other. Um, the degree to which there are non-CD4 T cells that actually have virus after several years of therapy is very controversial. Um, the, uh, the, the potential role of macrophages as a true reservoir during therapy in humans has not been proven, um, but, it, but I think many people suspect that it probably does exist. Those macrophages, if they are infected, they're probably in the brain, uh, in, the, in the genital urinary um, system, in places that are hard to actually measure and so forth. But if we want to cure people, we've got to get rid of the virus from the lymph nodes and mainly the gut. Um, now, there's, uh, there's, um, there's these, these iconic classic studies that have been done in cure research that have shown that in the blood, you can find virus that replicates the reservoir, pretty stable, slowly declines over decades. But again, that's not really what we care about anymore because most of the blood are in tissues. There are some interesting studies that have come out um, that have shown now that if you actually take pieces of tissue from the lymph nodes and people have been on therapy for two or three years versus 10 years, it's actually quite different. In the first several years of therapy, there appears to be a fair amount of inflammation in lymph nodes. Within those lymph nodes, you have lots of T cells that are actually activated, and the virus is actually quite densely packed into these cells, and these cells are making RNA, and perhaps that's where the virus in the blood comes from. Fine. We, we always knew that. But what's interesting in some of these studies that have come out, and we've seen this too in unpublished work, that the amount of virus that's in the blood I mean, lymph nodes in the first few years, very different than what happens a decade later, um, in which all the immune activation, chronic inflammation that we sort of see in the first few years of therapy seems to get better. The implication here is that, you know, is that patients who go on therapy, if they stay on it continuously and don't ignite new rounds of replication, 
lymphoid tissue gets better and better and better and better over many, many, many years. Um, so it's not like the first couple of years you've got most of your bang for your buck and it's over. Um, so that actually does suggest that the reservoir is not as stable as we've assumed and that in the tissues where the virus is, it actually declines over time and does so quite significantly. This is based mainly on a couple of studies that have been published, but our own unpublished work suggests that this is actually indeed what's happening. So treatment in tissues possibly is far more dynamic um, with sustained benefit that accumulates over many, many years. All right, so what do we know about the types of um, cells? So I was talking about the tissues. Now, which cell types does the virus actually infect? Um, we know, again, that the vast majority of the virus is in CD4 T cells. And when you take blood from the arm and you ask questions about what, what part of the immune system seems to correlate with the size of the reservoir, it's not too surprising. The more activation you have, the more activated T cells you have, the more proliferating T cells that you have, um, the more T cells that you have that have the capacity to migrate the tissues and so forth, um, these are the cells that seem to be pref these cells, having more of them is associated with more virus. And when you isolate these cells, there seems to be some enrichment of the virus within these different cell populations. But it's not dramatic. It's pretty subtle. Um, and so we have never really been able to sort of figure out if there is a classic biomarker that will allow us to um, isolate within people the T cell population that's infected. That possibility changed with an extremely high profile and perhaps a bit controversial study that you may or may not heard about. Um, it sort of changed the cure research agenda pretty rapidly and quickly that came out from a French group just a couple weeks ago. And what they found is they did some kind of in vitro assessment of the biology of latency and predicted how a virus in the cell might affect that cell and came up with a marker that they argue um, is a marker of the infected cell. And this is CD32A. Okay, so this, um, in my world, this is all we talk about these days. You go to any meeting and everyone keeps talking about CD32A. CD32A is not something that is typically expressed on CD4T cells. It's on B cells and, and NK cells, I believe. It's not a CD4T cell receptor. But according to this paper, and there has been some pushback, as there always is, the, um, um, when a virus infects a cell and latency is established, that cell will express CD32A. And there is a thousand-fold increase in the amount of virus in this small population um, compared to cells that don't have CD32A, suggesting that if we had an antibody, which are easy to make, that go out and specifically attack this cell population, a big chunk of the reservoir could be gotten rid of very quickly. Um, um, and so that's the theory. And we, we, we will wait. Basically, everybody that has the, the capacity to do these types of studies, essentially most people in the cure world, are now busy as we speak trying to figure out whether this is real or not because the response that many people got when they saw this is that this is just too dramatic and too good to be true. It's based on a small number of patients, but we will continue to have debates about this um, question pretty, pretty robustly, and I'm sure at the summer meeting it will be discussed, discussed quite widely. But it, it points out that we are really intensely interested 
and coming up with a very specific way to identify the cell population that's infected. So why? Why do, when people go on antiretroviral therapy, does the virus actually not go away? Why can't we cure people? Um, there are a, a few uh, mechanisms uh, that we think are important in virus persistence. There is ongoing debate um, as to whether or not the virus during long-term treatment replicates, okay? There was a really high-profile paper from this group here in Chicago led by Steve Walensky a few months, a few, uh, last year, that argued based on some compl complicated genetic analysis that at least in the first six months of therapy, the virus is still replicating, it's still spreading, it's still mutating. Um, those data uh, need to be confirmed, but what has been seen by almost every other group is that if you wait longer, if you go out past a year or so, the virus seems absolutely stagnant and stable. It does not change over time. And if the virus is replicating, it's mutating. And if it's mutating, it's changing. So I think the consensus among experts is that the virus population during treatment is either completely or largely blocked by treatment in the modern era. I will say that there's a fair amount of pushback now in terms of the work that's happening when people put needles in lymph nodes where we see a very different virus population and some indirect evidence that the virus is actually replicating, which might make sense. Antiretroviral drugs cannot get into lymph nodes as well as, we, as it can get elsewhere. So it certainly is possible that in many patients or some patients there's ongoing virus replication. If that's true, um, we need better antiretroviral drugs to get at that population. Um, but right now, I think that the, the field is going back and forth, back and forth as to whether or not the virus is actually replicating. I think the people who say, no, it's completely shut down 100% of the time and 100% of people sort of winning this argument, um, but stay tuned. And I think this actually has some impact on, on our patient population because if there is active virus replication in the lymph nodes, this could explain why there's this residual ongoing chronic inflammation, immune dysfunction, increased susceptibility to chronic sinusitis, bacterial infections, and so forth. Uh, so I think it's something from a clinical perspective we need to figure out. But the main reason, the main reason why the virus persists in people is that back when people were untreated, a virus got into a cell, the genetic information from that virus appears sometimes to get integrated within the human DNA that's associated with regulation of the growth of that cell. It's almost like it becomes a cancer cell. The virus then owns the machinery within that cell that allows it to proliferate. And those cells will proliferate like nuts, and they will do so for decades. And if you look at people who are on long-term therapy, a big chunk of the virus population comes from a single cell that has actually proliferated a billion times over a decade and now is a major reservoir. It's the same virus because the cell divides, the cell divides, and the virus it basically gets copied and copied and copied. So it's quite clear that a major reason why the virus persists is that, uh, is that the cells that are infected, resting cells, memory cells, do what they really should do, right? Memory cells need to persist for, for decades so that we can remember what we exposed them back, back in the day. Um, but this, at this process of ongoing proliferation uh, is um, it's common. 
and in some patients explains the vast majority of the virus population. Raising numbers of interventions, which we think can go after this, you block T cell proliferation, or if you find the cell, the antigen specificity of that cell, you may be able to design um, interventions to take care of it. This is probably the single most important reason as to the virus persists indefinitely. Finally, in terms of um, actionable uh, barriers to cure, another one that, that is continuing to um, emerge in the literature, and I think most people agree is true, is that, that HIV is a very clever guy. He's, um, they figure, HIV has figured out not only how to infect cells that live the longest, memory cells, but also how to infect a subset of these memory cells that live in B cell follicles. B cell follicles are that part of the immune system in which B cells are trained to make antibodies. These B cells do not like to make antibodies when there are killer cells around because it causes all sorts of mayhem and chaos. They like to do their business in a very clean and non-inflamed environment. So B cells reside within B cell follicles. B cell follicles reside within lymph nodes. And within that follicle, CD8 T cells, the killer cells, can't get in. And so you have this potential sanctuary where the virus replicates at will um, in these follicles. And CD8 T cells, the main part of the immune system that actually can control the virus, can't get in. And so there is tremendous interest now in breaking down these barriers to allow CD8 T cells to get into these follicles. Uh, rituximab does this. Rituximab, which is actually reasonably safe in people with HIV disease, we use it a fair amount in lymphoma and other diseases, um, as long as you have high CD4 T cell counts. Rituximab gets rid of B cells transiently, which actually opens up the follicle, which allows T cells to get in. So this is um, increasingly a part of the cure approach, is to break down these sanctuaries. They exist in lymph nodes. They exist in gut. They probably list, uh, persist in the um, uh, genital urinary system. Can the virus be measured? Fundamentally important question. Uh, if you remember the 90s, the most important thing that happened in, anti in antiretroviral drug was the development of the viral load assay. When we had the viral load assay, we had something we can measure that was very, very tied to disease pathogenesis. You could give a person an antiretroviral drug for 10 days and know whether it's working or not. This is exactly what drug companies love. The drug companies love biomarkers that work that well because it's so easy to make antiretroviral drugs. You just get five people, give them the drug, and 10 days later, you have an answer. And that's why a dozen companies got into the antiretroviral drug business back in the 90s, and that's why we have 25 antiretroviral drugs today with more to come. We need a biomarker of the reservoir that's that effective. If we had one, I am pretty sure that we would get a huge interest in industry getting involved in this business because it hasn't happened yet. The problem is the following. Um, the, the blue circle there, if that's the virus population that exists in humans uh, and during long-term treatment, the blue part of that circle is the dead stuff. Big chunk, 90% of the virus that exists in people is either mutated or defective it's useless, it's a graveyard, doesn't do anything. Um, about 10% of the virus population looks like it's intact, looks like it could do something, but it actually, it's hard to make it do anything. It's like frozen in time. You can't get it out of the, DNA, out of the cell. But about 1% of the virus population seems to, seems to be intact, 
and can actually replicate pretty easily. And the only way to measure this is the virus outgrowth assay. And so in the questions that we were posed to you guys, I asked, what is the best way to measure the reservoir? And to, to, to date, it's the virus growth assay. It's the, a, a way of measuring how much virus in a person can actually truly replicate. And in many people, it's only about one in a hundred of the virus that actually can be measured in terms of DNA. So finding the, the, the true replication competent virus is like very, very challenging. These assays are not easy to do. Um, and it's hidden by the fact that 99% of the virus is actually dead and useless in a decoy. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that the virus that's in blood is probably different than the virus that's in tissues. And we've shown this mainly, this is a work from our group, other groups have shown this, I don't need to get into the details, but that virus population in the cells that are infected that are in tissues are really different, we think now, than the virus that's actually in the blood. Um, and so you can do all the measurements in the world in the blood, but at the end of the day, you need to get virus in, from lymph nodes, gut, spleen, which we can't do. Now, it turns out that the oncologists have the same problem. The oncologists actually are dealing with the fact that um, they have these disease cells that, are hard, that don't circulate in blood, that are in tissues that are hard to get to, and sometimes are quite small and rare. Um, and what the oncologists are doing, and what we are now doing, is coming up with ways to develop these tracers. You take an antibody that's, that's specific for HIV, you, you put a label on it, pump it into a person's arm, it goes all over the body, it shoots off uh, something that you can pick up on a PET scanner, and you can actually then image, in theory, the distribution and the size of the reservoir, and there's a huge growth industry in cancer as well as in HIV to come up with ways to do this, and multiple studies are now getting launched to do that. All right, when is the virus actually established? Because this is very important. This gets to the question of whether or not we can cure people with antiretroviral drugs. Um, most of the virus gets, gets uh, turned on, get, seems to get in, um, into the reservoir in the first couple weeks that people are um, infected. So you, you get HIV for about five or seven days during the window period. The virus is sort of replicating in tissues at the site of entry. Not much is happening. The virus gets to the gut, gets to the lymph nodes, and boom, it explodes and you get this logarithmic increase. That usually happens around day 10 or so, and between day 10 of, of the infection and a couple weeks later, the reservoir is established. Um, and every day counts because you're just, you're depositing a um, massive amount of virus during that two to three week period. If a person shows up during that period of time, if you think a person shows up during acute infection, um, basically day 10 to day to the first month, we in San Francisco, if we think that they're in that situation and they're showing up for the first time and we have a clinical history or some antibody testing suggesting that they're right in that window period, they don't leave the room unless they're on antiretroviral drugs. Um, that is our standard now, and we've done this a fair amount. Now, obviously, someone comes in, they found out they're HIV infected. They have lots of issues. They're not necessarily into taking antiretroviral drugs, but you'd be surprised. Um, uh, I think a lot of people are quite informed about this, particularly among gay men um, living in urban settings. And um, they also realize that if you block that virus replication, then not only do you stop this reservoir, but you actually then protect people from transmitting virus to others during a period of time that they're actually most infectious. So that's 
we are really aggressively going out in the city and trying to get people with early acute infection. We bring them in, and when in doubt, we basically treat in the room. And I've done this recently with a guy who just found out, and he was desperate. He wanted those pills, and we gave him those pills uh, 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 before he left the room. Um, and his reason had nothing to do with the reservoir. He just didn't want to be in a public health nuisance or, or an issue for his, um, his friends and colleagues. So this has raised the question of whether or not if you could start therapy so early, you can actually block the virus from actually getting into the reservoir and cure people. And there was a presentation at Croy by the Thai, uh, by, by um, a, a group working with the military and individuals in Thai that showed that if you put people in antiretroviral therapy during that window, that really that first phase, and then you wait for a couple years, you really can't find very much virus in the blood. They stop therapy to see people infected, and boom, 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 boom. Virus came up in everybody very quickly, actually. Um, so standard treatment by itself is probably not going to be curative. We, on the other hand, have a patient that we'll talk about over the summer who started therapy not during that period of virus when it was coming up very rapidly, but, but actually during the window phase, early window phase, that transition, because he went on PrEP. Didn't know he was infected, but he actually went on PrEP just as the virus was beginning to take off. Um, and that PrEP acted as antiretroviral tr treatment, giving super early. And we spent two years trying to get, find virus in this gentleman could not find it anywhere. We looked at 1.5 billion cells, nothing happened. Um, we stopped therapy, um, and, um, and one month went by, two months went by, four months went by, seven months went by, nothing happened. But eight months later, boom, virus came back. And we'll talk about that at the, uh, at the meeting coming up this summer. So I do not believe, even though monkey doctors are curing monkey with early antiretroviral therapy, we are not gonna cure anyone with antiretroviral therapy in adults, and we didn't do it in the baby, if you remember the Mississippi baby, same story. But, but, if you're not, but it's all, we, we don't think we can cure people, but we certainly can actually block the virus from causing really bad harm to the immune system. And that's underlying thing with the Visconti cohort. I don't have time to go into the Visconti cohort. I think people have heard about this group. This is an, a cohort of people in Paris and France who started therapy not during the first couple weeks, actually, a little bit later, when the immune system had already had exposure to the virus. And um, about one in 10 people who start therapy at a magic moment, two, three months into their treatment, and they go on treatment for four or five years, their immune system actually uh, works quite well. Their overall reservoir is quite small. And about one in 10 have been able to stop therapy without the virus rebounding for quite some time. Um, and I think that that actually phenomenon is turning out to be real. Um, and of course, has some implications for how we manage people who start therapy early. All right, how, what should a cure look like? A lot of people are doing gene therapy, bone marrow transplants, allogeneic transplants, you know, trying to do the Berlin patient all over again. This is not gonna change the world. Um, what we need, what everyone thinks we need, is a cure that can be given to practically anyone, people living in Chicago, people living in San Francisco, people living in Zimbabwe, in people who are on, 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 on antiretroviral drugs that is safe and doesn't cost too much, right? This is sort of the profile of what a curative intervention might look like. Is this possible? Okay, I'm gonna end with just sort of a, um, 
kind of an aspirational approach as to how I think and our colleagues think is the best way to achieve a scalable cure that can be done globally at a reasonable cost, okay? Uh, the conceptual model that we're pursuing, that most groups are pursuing, is based on um, um, uh, what is happening in um, um, uh, elite controllers. Here, there's just a, a list of the various different approaches that can, people have been taking. A lot of interest in gene therapy. That's fine. Um, I, am, I have concerns about the toxicity and the cost. A lot of people interested in early antiretroviral therapy is curative, but as I just mentioned, I don't think it's actually going to be truly curative. It might result in control. But the real big growth industry is combining immunotherapy from the oncologist with shock and kill. Um, and, it's, and it's based in large part on, um, on, on some of the conceptual work that's been done in patients who control virus naturally. Now, if you study elite controllers or these post-treatment controllers, if you study people who do well in the absence of therapy, one in 100 people become elite controllers, maybe one in 10 people become post-treatment controllers, they have a low disease burden. They always start off with low reservoirs, so that's key. Um, they have low inflammation. It's a very consistent finding. You have to have an inflammatory environment that's actually been slowed down. Um, and they have a sustained host response that targets HIV. These three things, if you can achieve this in people, I believe you can achieve a potential cure. Cure being defined as being able to go off antiretroviral therapy, not have the drug bounce back. I could spend hours talking about the, what's happening in the clinic. There are there are dozens and dozens of studies going on right now. My own personal opinion is that we need a conceptual combination approach that requires turning on the immune system with vaccines, making those vaccines work better, um, probably disrupting those sanctuaries I talked about, and starting off with a low reservoir, okay? Just, just to give you guys a hint of how we're doing this, therapeutic vaccines are a major player. We have done therapeutic vaccines for decades. Nothing has really worked, but there's a new generation of vaccines which have come along. These new generation of vaccines are being constructed to deal with the things that we, we uh, believe were a problem for the first generation. Um, and an example that's, that's generated a lot of excitement is a vaccine that's been developed for prevention when given to monkeys in combination with a drug that Gilead is developing, a TLR7 agonist, in the right bottom corner, showed that in 10 monkeys that were given a combination of a vaccine during antiretroviral therapy with a vaccine adjuvant, three of the 10 monkeys became elite controllers, and the rest actually had long-term control of the virus population. This is monkeys. Similar observations were made in a study done in Barcelona, where they did a similar thing. They took people treated early, gave them a vaccine, this time with a latency-reversing agent, and they showed that about, um, I think about a third of the individuals who got this vaccine were able to stop antiretroviral therapy without major rebound in viremia. First time, in my opinion, that it's been shown that you can vaccinate someone 
and actually stop therapy and get an alteration in the natural outcome of the infection. Vaccines and chronic infection are not going to work alone. There is a massive amount of investment going on in terms of making T cells better in the oncology world. Most of these oncology drugs are now being moved carefully into the HIV cure world to help make vaccines work better. Um, and, and those studies are popping up in the ACTG and elsewhere. But they're not going to work by itself, in my opinion, in chronic infection, maybe acute infection. In chronic infection, you can have a vaccine, a vaccine adjuvant, and all this other stuff that's now happening in the clinic. But at the end of the day, the amount of virus that exists in your typical person with chronic infection probably is going to be too, too high to actually treat. And that's why there's intense interest still to this day in combining these combinations approaches with immunotherapy and vaccines with approaches that reduce the reservoir size. Okay? And that's actually being done by shock and kill. You guys have heard about this phenomena. There is a robust agenda to shock the virus out of its hiding place so that the, the immune system can kill it. So that in theory, over a period of a couple of years of doing this, the amount of virus can go down 100, 1,000 fold, at which point in time we think the immune system will actually be able to take care of it. There are dozens of these studies in the, in, in the, in the clinic. Um, they're beginning to work. They're not home runs, but it is, an, it is a massive amount of work going on in terms of shock and kill, which I think will result in reservoir reduction, which I think will then allow the immune system to take care of what's left. Um, that's our approach to cure, and a bunch of collaboratories and networks have been developed over the past few years that are more or less um, uh, designing strategies to do just that, to reduce the reservoir with early therapy or shock and kill while building up the immune system so that the T cells and other cells can actually work better, so in theory, one can stop drugs. That requires multiple drugs, multiple companies, and it's going to take some time, but that's where I think things are going. So just, just to summarize, um, lots of work needs to be done to figure out where the virus is. We're making great progress in this arena. Um, we know why the virus actually does not go away. Each of these are actionable and targetable. Um, we know you can get rid of the, the reservoir to a certain extent with early therapy, uh, but obviously that's not going to have an impact on people in chronic infection. Shock and kill will have a role, I think, because it will result in the reservoir reduction, although I don't think it will cure it, and that the real stuff are these combination approaches that are now emerging in the ACTG and in industry-sponsored studies that I think will do what's being done in oncology all the time now, will allow us to rebuild the immune system so that it works better. Thank you very much. Super. Super. So we're going to have you sit down, Steve. I'm going to stand up so I can take the cards, the stacks of cards that you uh, are all writing your questions about cure. Um, I ask, I don't have that many patients anymore, but I ask them if they, you know, they're on one pill once a day and they all say they'd rather be cured than take even one pill once a day. So I think there's, there's still a lot of uh, interest in progress in this area. Maybe while I sort through the cards, uh, 
I, I know why you didn't, but you didn't talk so much about gene therapy, but do you want to give people just a quick sense of what's happening in, in that arena? Um, and, and so there, in gene therapy, there are sort of two broad approaches. One is to make T cells resistant to HIV. Um, you can do that by knocking out CCR5 uh, and recreate the Berlin patient phenomenon. Um, and that actually is happening. We're doing multiple studies now where you do that in T cells. So you take T cells out, you get rid of CCR5 with some molecular scissors, you put it back in, see what happens. Um, but the real way you're going to cure uh, people with HIV is to do this in stem cells and get rid of everything else. And that requires a bone marrow transplant, and that's not going to be straightforward. The other stuff, for which there's huge buzz right now, in fact, there was a lot of media attention the last couple of days, is you use this CRISPR technology. <coughs> these are these scissors these enzymes that can go into a cell and just cut up anything. And um, it's turning out that there's actually a mouse study, I believe, recently where they had a humanized mice with the, an immune system from a, from, a, from, a, from a person that was rebuilt in the, in the, in the mouse, was infected with HIV, and they used this CRISPR technology to just go into the cells and just doo -doo -doo, cut up the viral genomes and basically made them defective. It's science fiction type stuff. Um, there are a lot of issues going, a lot of issues to get this into the real world, but it, it, to me, I've not really paid too much attention to that because my our group is quite interested in things that will will have a global impact. Um, some really great questions already. Um, so one uh, addresses this kind of rapid uh, initiation of therapy. Sure. Uh, how can you start without getting a resistance genotype first, and talk about what you do there? Well, so um, there's a lot of non-nuke resistance in our city. I think still 10%, so we don't use non-nukes. Um, there's a fair amount of 184V, but that's it. And so we have basically um, have decided that, and there's no integrase inhibitor resistance circulating. So we have found that if you give persons two nukes, generally you can't use a Bacavir because you don't have HLAB57, so we give people TAF or Tenofovir, FTC and dolutegavir, and that's our standard. And it, we haven't had any problems in terms of people having resistance to that combination. But so you, get draw, you draw the resistance assay. We draw the resistance. Stuff. We give them the, that combination. Uh, it, it, many might actually prefer to give two nukes and boosted darunavir, but we just use dolutegavir, and it seems to be working. So an, another kind of pushback on that uh, that the process of immediate initiation, uh, what do you tell the patient? Do you say there is a benefit to starting therapy early, or do you say there's a possibility of a benefit for starting therapy early? So again, this is not your, so the people who show up who are people who are getting tested frequently, people are getting tested frequently, have a fair amount of knowledge of what's happening. Um, they know they're at risk. They know what happens. They know that it's good to get on therapy early for, for whatever reason. So. I've actually been shocked by the people I've met in this setting. They're very kind of nonchalant. They figured, okay, it's going to happen. I mean, it's not everyone. But you can just have a discussion. Smart people will understand that, that the virus is causing much of its badness in the first couple of weeks, and we can stop it with treatment. And that, I think, sort of makes sense. But the thing that drives people is, is, the, is the sexual risk stuff. People do not want to be a risk to others. And it's very easy to explain that during that acute period of, vi of viremia, they're most infectious. And that's when they desperately want the treatment. 
um, just so that they can protect their partners. And that's actually the major driving. So um, one question that I know we've talked about a lot, might come up later in the, in the neurology uh, uh, talk, but what's the significance of virus in the CNS? Uh, is the CSF a reservoir of HIV? Well, the CNS is definitely a reservoir of HIV in people who um, have advanced HIV disease. That's how people develop all these neurologic conditions that we'll talk about later, including dementia. There's no question about that. And, and, and that virus probably is doing some of its badness by working in macrophages. Um, it's not entirely clear how much virus is produced during early infection. Clearly in the first, and there will be a talk later, we'll show that there's, you can actually find HIV RNA and CSF during acute infection. Uh, it's probably coming from T cells, and maybe T cells from the from um, outside the CNS that's going in. But um, it has been pro has proven to be very very hard to show that in your typical person who starts therapy early, who's been in therapy for several years, that there's actually infected brain cells. Um, it probably exists, but it's 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 debated. It may in fact be CD4 T cells that are residing in the brain. Um, but I think we'll have a discussion later on this afternoon about that. I can see that from the audience. Um, so a question about the patients with this low level, but you know, measurable with ultra-sensitive sure. assays, yeah. uh, uh, viral load, some uh, evidence of persistent inflammation. Uh, will that prevent um, uh, remission and control? Um, it's certainly. Um, if you have low-level viremia or blippers or people who are always, like, detected but not quantifiable, very common in my clinic, that's a reservoir that's probably going to be much more difficult to control, and we'll have to get it lower. More important, this is all theoretical stuff. A more important question, which has not been answered, is whether that, that amount of virus is causing harm to a person. Um, is it replicating? Probably not. Is it causing inflammation? Probably yes. Is that inflammation bad for the heart? Steve Grinspoon may talk about this. Probably. Uh, but it hasn't been proven. And we don't know what to do with it. So a question uh, here about uh, now we have our choice of various treatment regimens, you know, and an RTI-based, PI-based, integrase-based. Uh, any evidence that any of them are different in terms of their effect on the reservoir? Nothing clinical. Um, there's pathogenesis type stuff that have shown that um, um, protease inhibitor treated people may have more virus that's replicating. It's indirect evidence. It's controversial. Um, there's some evidence that the integrase inhibitors have better penetration in certain tissues. I, I, I actually think, um, I mean, I'm aware of all this information. I, it does not impact the way I think about treatment. I treat people with the safest drugs possible because uh, it's all about safety, safety, safety. All these drugs more or less work enough. Um, so you can make a theoretical argument that increase inhibitors are better for the cure stuff, but I, I, in no way would that have an impact on how I manage patients. So um, everyone knows the famous Timothy Ray Brown, the, the sole cure. Any latest update on what you think about uh, why he was cured after all? We have no through? idea. So <laughs> Timothy, Timothy Brown was cured 10 years ago. Um, and um, he's doing fine. Um, there have been multiple attempts to do this again. It's all failed. Um, Timothy Brown got uh, three things. He got massive ablation. The Germans are, at least at that period of time, were much more aggressive at 
myeloablation for leukemia. So we got tons of stuff. And it really destroyed everything he had at the get-go. Then he had graft-versus-host disease, which was quite bad for a couple of years. And the donor cells from the donor actually attacked, we think, the Timothy's original T-cell population. Um, so it was donor versus reservoir stuff going on. Um, and that helped clear it up the stuff. And, of course, the immune system that came back lacked CCR5. So whatever was left couldn't replicate. So it was those three things, but you needed all three of them, we think. And no one has actually been able to do this again because we're not using massive ablation. We try not to have graft-versus-host disease. We, we manage that aggressively. Um, and, um, and that actually, I think a lot of people who studied Timothy Brown's case think the graft-versus-host disease was critical to what happened. But several attempts to repeat, repeat it have not done it. It's in, um, this is my question. So it's interesting. I think the numbers are maybe 3% of northern Europeans are uh, CCR5 homozygote uh, deleted. Um, why haven't there been more um, uh, transplants there have been. with CCR5 deleted and, there have been. and none of them have worked either? Uh, there have been um, a couple cases in which the person who was being cured had X4 virus and the CCR5 depletion wasn't sufficient. Yeah. Uh, there have been cases in which the, um, the donor cells were probably not the best match so they were too aggressive going after the CCR5, and there was um, uh, transplant failure. Um, there have been recurrence of leukemias. So there have been, mo in fact, you look at the data and you wonder if there's something different. I mean, usually half or so of people should do well in these transplant protocols, but that's not happening. Um, I think four or five of these cases have, have actually now been attempted. They've all ended badly. It just, uh, it's just, Something happened with Timothy that we've not been able to recreate. And then let me push on uh, this, the idea that the follicle, that antiretroviral drugs don't get in the follicle. I, and this, again, is my question, because I don't understand um, what physically would exclude a small molecule like we're using uh, from entering these, uh, these areas. Well, to be clear, the follicle, these, these small circumcised area where B cells do their work in the lymph nodes, um, the thing that can't get in there are T cells, CD8 T cells. So there's, the immune system can't get in there and kill. Treatment should be able to get in there. But there have been, num there have been two groups that have studied this, um, Courtney Fletcher and now actually a, a San Francisco-based group, who, who put a needle in these lymph nodes, and the amount of antiretroviral drugs that are in those tissues is much lower than we expected. So there may be pharmacologic barriers, pumps and this and that, that are preventing drugs from getting in the lymph node tissues for whatever reason. But we don't know why. Okay. So I have still a stack of questions. Uh, thanks a lot. Uh, Steve, this is a really great uh, survey of Cure Research. Thank you so much. You're welcome.